You're listening to How to Succeed in Evil, Crazy Psycho Murder Tree. Chapter 14, Cuthbert Grafts the Tree. When Bryce Warner had first developed his eccentricities, Cuthbert had an infirmary installed in the seldom-used east wing of the manor. No expense had been spared, and what, from the outside, had the appearance of a stately old room was as well-equipped as any trauma ward in the city. The real trick had been locating a discreet doctor with the variety of experience that might be required. The result of this search was Dr. Pye, and when they got home, the good doctor was waiting in the driveway with a wheeled stretcher. Bryce remained asleep through his x-rays. After Dr. Pye had reviewed them, he pronounced his verdict. A severely twisted ankle, a concussion, and some bruising around the shoulder girdle. Then he asked, Now would you like to tell me what happened? Cuthbert sighed. Master Bryce thought it necessary to leap from the top of a three-story car park. Dr. Pye shook his head. Then he looked at Cuthbert and asked, And what about you? I was unable to stop him, so I took a more conventional way down. No, I mean, what's with you? You look exhausted. Master Bryce is eccentric in his habits. I know that, said Dr. Pye. What I'm asking is, he is nocturnal in his habits. So he's not letting you sleep. That is correct. Dr. Pye looked at Bryce Warner for a long time, then at Cuthbert. Then he picked up his bag and motioned for Cuthbert to follow him into the hallway. There he sat his bag on a side table and produced an ampule and syringe. He should wake up shortly, get some food in him, help him use the bathroom. But after he's eaten dinner, give him 30 cc's of this. It should keep him down all night. You've got to take care of yourself, Cuthbert, if you're to take care of him. Is it dangerous? Cuthbert asked. It's an opium derivative, but as long as you give him 30 cc's, there shouldn't be any problem. It's just a mild sedative, said Dr. Pye reassuringly. But Cuthbert hadn't asked the question for reassurance. For an instant, he had thought of using the drug to gain a good night's sleep, not just tonight, but for the rest of his life. He was ashamed of himself as soon as he thought it, but it had been thought all the same. Of course, it was no real solution. Master Bryce might be difficult, but Cuthbert knew his uneasy conscience would make the cruelest master of all. Cuthbert showed Dr. Pye out. Before the good doctor had left the drive, the intercom was buzzing again. The angry, flat honking of that ancient, vibrating metal buzzer caused Cuthbert's shoulders to rise and almost killed all of the sympathy he had for his injured master. Almost. When he got to the infirmary, Cuthbert found Master Bryce was wallowing in the depths of his failure. He said, I can't believe my cat-like reflexes failed me. Cuthbert said, You did land on your feet, sir. Judging from your sprained ankle, I would say more on the left than the right. As for the concussion, well, perhaps that's just the price of doing a rough business in an unforgiving world. But I failed. I failed the city. I failed everyone. You did not fail, sir. At least your courage did not fail. You are no more a failure than a knight who charged into battle without his armor. You were game, sir. You were not prepared. 
Surely everything cannot be your responsibility. To those who much have been given, much is expected. Yes, sir, but surely not everything. You do not understand my calling, my burden, the burden of my privilege. Of course not, sir. After seeing to his bodily needs, a light dinner and a bathroom trip, Cuthbert tucked his charge into bed with a sedative, 40 cc's of it, just to be sure. Then he arranged for a private nurse and poured himself a glass of the master's wine. He didn't usually indulge, but it was recognized as the butler's prerogative from time immemorial. Then he retreated to his tiny quarters and was asleep before his head hit the pillow. The next morning, Cuthbert awoke, let the nurse in, saw to breakfast, and then retrieved the fragments of the bogus from the car. He handled them carefully and took them to the garden shed. He laid the branches on the potting bench, and next to them he placed a sharp hatchet. Above the potting bench were two shelves of books on gardening and plants. Some were ancient and bound in fine leather. They had belonged to his father, for whom gardening had been a passion. When Cuthbert had been just a boy, his father would tell him bedtime stories of the great plant adventurers of the 19th century, men like Robert Fortune, who had set out for unknown corners of the world and returned to England, sometimes tens of years later, with marvelous new species, rich both in beauty and scientific and commercial potential. Even as a boy, Cuthbert could recognize that his father might have been born into the wrong age. As Cuthbert himself had aged, he had come to appreciate the simple joys his father had found in gardening. From his first vocation, he still thought it better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. But it was with a real sense of pleasure that he donned his reading glasses and started perusing his father's books on gardening. A little before lunch, he had tried them all, and he'd been forced to admit defeat. The identification of trees was a difficult proposition at best, but this branch was unidentifiable. It expressed so many contradictory characteristics, yet was alien to any normal classification he could find. Was it a tree, or was it something masquerading as a tree? Cuthbert was simply at a loss. So he picked up the branches, replaced them in the trunk of the car, and drove them to Erbach's greenhouse and botanical supply. In the back, past rows and rows of flowers, ornamental plants, fruit-bearing and shade-giving trees, he found a small greenhouse with opaque white windows. Inside was Augustus Erbach, spraying orchids with a mister. Erbach heard him approach but did not turn, his attention never wavering from the minute examination of a waxy leaf. They can help you up front, he said rather bluntly. I don't think they can. I have something of a unique problem, said Cuthbert, holding out a branch. The old man turned around, looked over his glasses, then down his nose through his glasses at the branch. Then he returned to his orchids and said, Zerum diazepran. Excuse me, said Cuthbert. You've got an invasive tree you'd like to get rid of. How did you know? Lady came in yesterday with the same thing. But what kind of tree is it? Spent all day trying to figure that out. Didn't have much luck. It's something like Ginkophyta, but not. It's not quite Spermophyta. It's not quite Pinophyta. And not quite like anything I've seen. The old man turned and looked Cuthbert right in the eye. But I put it under the microscope and Z-Pran with it right up. But have a care with it. It's deadly to both plants and humans. 
evil stuff. Urbach held out his hand for the branch that Cuthbert had brought. I'll dispose of that safely, if you like. Cuthbert did not hand over the branch. Urbach eyed him suspiciously, and then shrugged as if it was none of his business. Cuthbert said goodbye, but the man didn't look up from his plants. Having procured some of the deadly poison, Cuthbert drove home with a gallon jug of it sitting next to him in the front seat of the Bentley. He took the poison and the branches and went to the garden shed. There he got a grafting knife, some tar, and a roll of clear paper. There was a young cherry tree beside the shed. He hadn't decided where he would place it yet, so it was still in the pot. With a sharp jerk of the knife, he decapitated the tree, leaving only two inches of stem sticking up out of the soil. He made a similar cut in the branch at a 45-degree angle. Then he joined the two, spread tar along the lines of the cut, and wrapped the junction with plastic tape. The graft most certainly wouldn't take, but Cuthbert was moved by some instinct he didn't fully understand to attempt it. In any event, he would watch the plant closely. He was his father's son, after all, unable to resist the lure of a rare specimen. If you like How to Succeed in Evil, you should support it by becoming a paid subscriber at patrickemaclean.substack.com. And if you do, I mean, for the paltry sum of $5 a month, you get to binge the rest of this story right now. I mean, that's a good deal, right? You not only get to satisfy your need for instant gratification, but you get to do so in a way that lets you feel good about yourself while you're doing it. So if you want to wait a week to get the next episode, that's fine. It'll be here right on schedule. But is it the most evil thing in the world to suggest that in these trying times, you deserve a little happiness? It's actually fairly evil. This is marketing, but you should still subscribe.